about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness, a faith and knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time, and at his appointed season, he brought his word to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Saviour. To Titus, my true son, in our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Saviour. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. An elder must be blameless, the husband of but one wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer is entrusted with God's work, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught, so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. For there are many rebellious people, mere talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced because they are ruining whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. Even one of their own prophets has said, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in the faith and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to the commands of those who reject the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. This is the word of the Lord. Hi, I'm Beck. If you flip over the page, our second Bible reading comes from Titus chapter 3, verses 12 to 15. As soon as I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, because I have decided to winter there. Do everything you can to help Zenus the lawyer and Apollos on their way and see that they have everything they need. Our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good in order that they may provide for daily necessities and not live unproductive lives. Everyone with me sends you greetings. Greet those who love us in the faith. 
Grace be with you all. Uh, we are starting a brand new series this evening. Uh, Deuteronomy will come back for one week a bit later. There's a reason why we're doing that. That's my fault. You can talk to me about it later. But uh, the next four weeks, we're going to be talking about how the gospel makes you good. That is what the book of Titus is all about. Uh, It opens uh, with Paul saying very profoundly that a knowledge of the truth should lead to godliness. That the gospel announcement in the Lord Jesus Christ, when it grips and takes hold of you, when it's in your stream, when it holds your bones, a divine life comes up in you that is profound and remarkable and good. Let me pray that God might make us good as we consider Titus together. Loving Heavenly Father, you are good always, all the time, in every place, in every season. And Father, we come tonight humbly asking you to do a new work in us. Asking you to make us good, unfailingly, as you are. And we pray you do that through your word, by your spirit, for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, it, it's, it's spring. Uh, you might have noticed that today. It's unbearably hot. Uh, you, you may not have noticed because winter's been the hottest and driest one uh, for a long time, but spring is that season, isn't it, uh, where you get your house in order uh, for spring cleaning, for thinking afresh about summer and Christmas even. Uh, perhaps someone who will aid you in this endeavor, and please tell me you've heard about Mary Kondo, the uh, four feet, eight inch high Japanese wizard. Uh, and her book, I love this, I love everything about this, The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up. If you haven't heard of this, this is quite a thing. Uh, and there are people in societies all over the world who are dedicated uh, to this style of organizing things. It all comes down to one simple question. Um, you need to ask everything in your life, every object. Does it spark joy? I love this. Uh, it's simple, it's profound, uh, it's a way to deal with absolutely everything in your life. You can start doing this this evening with the people around you even. Um, <laughs> what is so fascinating though is that this is really something that goes much further beyond spiritual, uh, beyond physical things to spiritual things. So on her Twitter, you can read, um, organize your physical space to create room in your mind and heart. Or the question of what you want to own is actually the question of how you want to live your life. See, reordering your house, getting your house in order, is not just a physical thing, it's a spiritual thing. And she's saying, if you can just work out what sparks joy, then everything will kind of work its way out. Now, there are cheap knockoffs of this, hilariously, um, that really get to the brunt of where this leads you. This book, Minimalism, Live a Meaningful Life, says on the back cover, discover which excess possessions, tasks, and get this, relationships you can jettison from your life. So you can focus on the important things. You know, Aunt Betty 
that old scarf and those chores you do every week, just line them up and just knock some off uh, and life will be a little bit better. This is fascinating, uh, this whole culture of things. And, you know, uh, Kondo, uh, at, at times when she's talking, she's not just aiming at uh, organizing some people's houses. She triumphantly declares how she's looking to reorganize the whole world. But the reality is that the whole game of minimalism is self-defeating. The answer to the fact you have too many things is just to find some really special things and focus a bit more on them rather than all the things. It doesn't really create any deep, abiding, spiritual change at all. It may declutter you for spring, but it cannot make you good. It cannot set your relationships in order. It cannot really change the way you impact the world. It's a great uh, and fantastic thing. But the gospel can reorganize your house, reorganize your life in a way that profoundly changes you and through you impacts the world. And what we see in this opening chapter uh, in Titus is a letter from Paul to a leader, Titus, who basically has the job of Mary condoing the island of Crete, right? He's been left there to set everything straight in verse 5, to set and order everything out. And what you get in the opening of this letter is how it is that the gospel starts to reorder houses particularly the household of God, and start to impact things around. I'm going to explore this very simply this evening. Uh, In terms of how it is you get your house in order, three things, the personnel, the particulars, and the power. How you get your house in order. First of all, the personnel. Have a look at chapter 1, verse 5. Here you get the mission statement. I le- uh, the reason I left you in Crete was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. As we said before, the mission is to reorder the whole of this island and particularly the household of faith. What's interesting in this opening chapter is how there's an analogy between an ordinary household and the church of God. Did you pick that up? Uh, you see as he starts to lay out uh, reasons uh, for what, why leaders should be particular ways in terms of household. So he cares about how a leader might care for his wife and his children, how he manages his own house. Because in verse 7, an overseer is entrusted with what? God's work, literally managing God's house. How is it? that Crete will be put in order. What are the personnel needed? What's needed is leaders, leadership. And leadership is defined very simply here for Titus. It's managing God's house, stewarding God's resources, putting God's things in order among his people. That is the task of a, of a Christian leader. And I think it's a definition that really covers everyone in the room, doesn't it? It covers me as someone who's leading in God's house. But it it also touches you and the house that you have. 
because everyone in this room has resources that God has placed in their hands and you need to work out how to steward them, how to put your house in order. Leadership is the personnel needed to put God's house in order on Crate, and it is what we need in our lives to set our lives in order around the gospel and its priorities. Now, in this first kind of section, you get a picture of what Christian leaders should be like. People like me who have authority and, and a means of speaking over and into God's people. Now, in this list, there are a whole bunch of different things we could pick on. Uh, but two really stand out because they're repeated through the rest of the letter. They're both in verse 8. They are side by side, which is so convenient. They are one who loves what is good and who is self-controlled. What is Titus to look for in people to set in leadership? Self-control and lovers of what is good. Now, these are two things that go through the whole letter. Self-control is mentioned four, maybe five times in chapter Two, first of all, and it really kind of sums up a lot of the other characteristics. What does self-control look like? It means sexual fidelity. A one-woman man a leader is to be. It means not flying off the handle with anger in verse 7. It means not being overbearing with your use of power in verse 7. It means not being addicted to wine or to beer. It means not being overhauled by any desire, even greed or want of money within you. Being able to live a life not controlled by any other desire than to love and know the Lord Jesus. You see, God isn't looking for people of influence, power, significance, eloquence. He's looking after people of character. People have consistency and integrity who are the same person all the way through because they are people of self-control. That's what the gospel does to you. It teaches self-control. But the second thing it does uh, is it moves outward from that. It makes you love what is good. And loving what is good and doing good is one of the central th themes through this whole letter. You get at the end of chapter 1, uh, 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 Paul says about the people on Crete that they are unfit for doing good. Uh, Titus is told in chapter 2 to set an example of good, and the older women are to set an example of good. In chapter 2 and 3, the purpose of our salvation is that we might eagerly do what is good. The gospel should make you good. But what does that mean? Let me show you two quick examples in chapter 3 of what that means. In chapter 3, verse 2, uh, sorry, verse 1, uh, in talking about uh, leaders and wider authority over the island, he says to them, to Christians, that they should be ready to do whatever is good. Christians on this island are to contribute to the common good in whatever way they can find. Any person, anywhere, any place, anything that promotes the common good, they are to be on about. The gospel creates people who love the good. 
But at the end of the chapter that we had read out just before, you you get even a a more specific flavor. Uh, In verse 14, Paul says to finish the letter, our, our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good in order that they may provide for daily necessities and not live unproductive lives. Just before it, he mentions two people who are about to visit Crete, Zenos and Apollos. And the reason why he says they should supply for needs is because those missionaries are going to come into the port and the Christians need to hand them money and food and supplies and send them on their way so they can proclaim the gospel. Part of loving what is good is promoting the gospel, is allowing that to flourish in the world. So, so loving what is good is, is twofold. It's, it's doing whatever you can toward the common good of the place in which you live and promoting the gospel all over the world. And you can't have one without the other. The gospel breeds in us both. And so what Titus is to look for, the people, the personnel to reorder things, uh, who are they supposed to be? They'd be self-controlled and to love what is good. Their self-leadership is to have that kind of flavor. That's what it's supposed to look like for you to reorder your house, to set your house in order. Self-control and loving what is good. Is there something that is mastering you at the moment? Are you living just for yourself rather than others and the gospel? then your house needs straightening up. God is looking for leaders of self-control who love what is good. That's the personnel. But what are the particulars? Well, there's particular problems in Crete. And uh, in chapter 1, if you flick back there, the big problem that Paul says right at the end is quite simple. They are unfit for doing anything good. Can you imagine being called that? Can you imagine at the bottom of your work report? Oh, you know, they're unfit for doing anything good. You know, school report, Twitter, oh, you know, oh, yeah, Matt, he's, he's not, not good for anything. Um, that, how do you end up there? What are the particulars of what needs to be straightened up in this whole island and the Christians on it so that they can actually get on with self-control and doing the good? Well, there's two things, really, and these are the two things in every house that go astray, aren't they? Clutter an appetite, eating and not cleaning it up, and the stuff just accumulates. It's the same with Crete, just on a spiritual level. There's clutter and there's desires gone wild. First of all, there's clutter. Uh, There's a whole bunch of what he calls rebellious people, talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision group. There's a bunch of Jews running around the island teaching what are biblical ideas but that are leading people astray. So that he goes on later in kind of 15 to go on to a rant about pure things. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. The Jews had clear rules about what was in and what wasn't in. And these Jewish teachers are teaching, oh, you know, if you want to be a Christian, you've got to get circumcised and you've got to be careful what you eat. You've got to be careful what you do. Paul labels what they're doing as paying attention to Jewish myths and human commands in verse 14. 
They are cluttering up the island. They're filling people's heads with ideas that sound right, but have nothing to do with Jesus. He's selling, these leaders are selling them a vision basically of religion, of doing the right things to be accepted by God, of following the right commands, their commands, to have and be a good person. Because if you're obsessed enough with the rules, then you do enough good, then God will love you. Paul says they have to be silenced. There's no room. The gospel leaves no room for them. I'm really thankful recently for The Handmaid's Tale, uh, which is a very disturbing show. Very disturbing. But you know what it makes very clear? What Christianity is and what religion is. Because it is a beautiful picture of a world ordered, completely structured around religion and not the gospel. Margaret Atwood, in describing religion and, and thinking about that, she wrote The Handmaid's Tale that got turned into the TV series. She says, you know, people like the people I'm describing in this book, they're not interested in belief or in faith, they're interested in compliance. And they're using religion as a way to get the compliance. You see, religion is about coercion and power. It is about taking control of others and taking control of God himself through our own efforts and good behavior. And it is completely contrary to the gospel of Christ. And it's remarkable uh, when, you, when you see just simple relationship uh, in the Hamad cell, as you see it on TV, uh, um, uh, the opening scene when these two meet, uh, you get offered describing how there is no friendship in this world. There's only fear. Because in a world run by human commands, everything is based on whether I'm good enough and whether they're good enough. And there is no love or goodness. Religion cannot make you good. And so Paul says, you've got to get rid of that clutter. You've got to appoint leaders and they've got to get rid of that religious thinking. But the second thing that's wrong on Crete is appetite. Paul describes how these, these people and the, on the island, there are so many people who claim to know God in verse 16, but by their actions, they deny him. And then you get in verse uh, 12, that cracking, absolute, slam punch knockdown of how credans are the worst people on earth. Did you read that? Credans are always liars, evil brutes, Lazy gluttons. They live from their gut. They're good for nothing. And they never even tell you the truth. It's a picture of people who are just like animalistic in their instinct. Cicero talked about people on Crete and said, you know, moral principles are so divergent on Crete that they consider highway robbery as honorable. These are people run completely by their desires. Completely by their base animal instincts. Because the reality is, is if you're living a religious life, your desires don't get touched at all. You can live out every human command you want, but it won't change your internal desires. And on Crete, there's this weird mix of religion and then desires gone wild. 
And this is the reality, not just of Crete, but this is the reality of our houses, of our lives. That we have filled up ourselves with religion and our desires run wild and our houses end up a mess. And really everything within our power that we use the little bit religious and command and human rules that we kind of dump over ourselves don't really fix it. We are in the end powerless to set our houses straight. So the third thing we need is a different power. You see, the gospel is able to make you good because it is a power that doesn't come from inside you nor does it come from anything in this world. It is the grace that comes down to us from eternity. That is how Paul describes it at the beginning. But you see, the basic problem that we have, and why it is that we can't really get free and get good through our religion and because of our desires, is that really everything we do is just a desperate attempt to take control of our lives in view of death. In Anna Karenina, there's this fantastic character, Levin, who's a Weasley in the movie, and weird. Um, And he's kind of Anna's counterpart in the novel by Tolstoy. And he perfectly nails the problem why we can't take control of our lives, and it is our fear of death. He says this, In infinite time, in the infinity of matter, in infinite space, this is what we are. We are a bubble organism that separates itself and guess what that bubble it holds out for a while and then bursts and that bubble is me then he goes on to describe how this was the latest belief on which all the researches of the human mind in almost all fields was built this was the reigning conviction that we are but a bubble about to burst And it is the reigning conviction in our day. And you know, if you're a bubble waiting to burst, who cares about desire? Who cares about anything but using life as a means to take hold of things? Who cares how disordered my house is? I need to take control of this moment that I have that is about to flee from me. You see, the gospel deals with that in a profound and remarkable way. As it's described at the beginning of Titus, do you know what the basis of God's house is? It is the reality that God, from all eternity past, has promised us for all eternity future to house us in His house because we can't order our own. Paul says, this is the gospel, a knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time, and that this appointed seizing brought his word to light through the preaching entrusted to me. You see, the word of the gospel, it comes from eternity and says, here, you get housed for eternity for free. You are not just a bubble. Yes, your house will one day pop. But the Lord Jesus came into this world 
and suffered the consequence of your crumbling house that you might have his eternal house forever. And the beginning of Titus, what happens is that is declared to us and it has nothing to do with us. God decided before time began. He chose us. He brought it to light through the preaching that was commanded at his hand. He is able to reorder our houses. And you see, the thing that starts to make you good is when you get the fact that nothing you do can make you good. And nothing you do is good until you receive and put your faith in God's goodness toward you and accept His eternal offer of housing so that your life isn't about securing your bubble but about offering that goodness to others. So I want to make the plea to you this evening to stop trying to reorder your house and instead let the good God of heaven reorder it for you. And if you're here this evening and you've been here a few times and you've heard this story a few times, but eternal life and eternal housing is not yet yours, then you mightn't have known walking in, but tonight's the night when it becomes yours. And all it takes is asking for it. It's a present open before you, and if you want it, why don't you pray with me now? Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we come before you and we recognize that our house is not in order. And all the religiousness and all the command following cannot quench the desires we have in us. And yet there is Jesus who enters into this world, faces our consequence, and offers us his house instead. And Father, for those who are here tonight who want, it, who want your house, they say, thank you, yes, please, I'm sorry. Let me into your house forever. And Father, for those this evening who've realized that their house is not in order, that really they can't be good without you, Father, they put their faith not in their goodness, but in yours. And they entrust their flimsy bubble into your eternal hands that you might bring about goodness in them that brings you glory. In Jesus' name, amen.
Thanks for listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church Podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.